time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test, you know he's the one, yeah Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test, you know he's the one, yeah Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test no, he's the one, yeah. Almost kind of broke into a freestyle right there. Let's, let's pray, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for resurrection Sunday morning. Thank you. Thank you for the empty grave. Thank you for the hope of resurrection. Thank you that the grave does not have the final word. Thank you that forces of domination, forces of oppression, forces that take life do not have the final word. For you prove through the cross and through the empty grave that you even have power over death. And for that, God, we are grateful. And we know that one day in the same way that Jesus got up, one of these days, the grave will prove insufficient to hold us down. That we also get to get up. That our ancestors that went before us get to get up. That those who had their lives taken too soon get to get up. That ultimately, the forces that put them in the grave will prove to not have been powerful enough to have had the final word because we serve a God with resurrection power. Thank you, God. Thank you. I pray in the name of Jesus that you will open up our hearts and our minds to hear what you will have to say to us. Preach through me to these, your people, in a way that is real, relevant, and palatable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Won't you praise God for this music ministry that put the dope back in the dopest church on the planet this morning? Amen. Amen. I want to jump into some preaching this morning that comes out of some questions that I have just been raising uh, personally as of late, uh, and it is with regard to this thing that we call salvation. Um, and raising the question, what does it mean to be saved, really? Does it mean for us to simply have our ticket punched uh, to be on our way to heaven, um, because given the realities of the world that we live in and the challenges that we face, I am perplexed with this notion that my ticket to heaven, if that is all that salvation does, is inadequate to give us a better existence. So is it that God intends for us to have more than we actually have, and perhaps we don't have it because we have stopped short of really understanding what it means to be saved. And so that's what I want to dive into today. That is the question that I want to uh, raise and examine for the, sake of, uh, for the sake of this sermon. Let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I didn't submit slides, so there won't be verses uh, on the screen, but you can uh, find it on your smartphone. Smart Acts chapter 4, uh, verse, 
looking at verse 32 through 35, I'm going to read most of those uh, four verses. It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. I want to talk about collective salvation. Collective salvation. The paradox of 2022 is that many people are saved, yet we are collectively drowning. How is it that the world is so saved, yet perishing so ardently? So much hatred, so much isolation, so much loneliness, so much war, so much poverty and oppression. So many are saved, yet we are collectively drowning. Could it be because the cross of Christ and what it means to be saved has been misrepresented to us? That we have been stopped short of the depth of the salvation which Jesus really offered. Perhaps the cross of Christ was not merely to offer us individual salvation or merely a ticket, a personal ticket to heaven and a righting of the wrong within us. But something that is much more expansive than that. Perhaps it was indeed to save us as individuals, but also as individuals who are a part of a collective whose ethos, whose understanding, whose beliefs are informed by Jesus Christ. And that that would would change in turn the way that we engage with one another, in the way that we would treat one another, in the way that we would help and love one another. So perhaps the reason, perhaps the reason that we feel like we are collectively drowning is because we have not been collectively saved. We have activated our salvation through Jesus Christ as individuals, but have not considered or engaged in what it means to participate in collective salvation. What I mean is this, We have indeed been saved, but we've been saved in a way that aligns with this dangerous, divisive, American, capitalistic ideal called rugged individualism. This ideal that says every person for themselves, that that every person should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, that says that people are responsible for their own success and their own failures. These ideals have informed how we have been taught to think about our relationship to Jesus Christ, to God, and to one another. And so rather than the very collective communal way that the first Christians understood their salvation and the practice of faith, we have understood it as strictly individual. My theological convictions lie at the intersections of words from Jay-Z, W.E.B. Du Bois, and the Book of Acts. It is a deep conviction that the way of Christ, and I will go as far as to say the best path forward even for black folks, is for rugged individualism to be traded in for collective salvation. In his inaugural album, Reasonable Doubt, Jay-Z rapped a memorable line providing a glimmer of collectivism. 
In it, he said, if everybody in your clique is rich, your clique is rugged, nobody would fall because everyone would be each other's crutches. Now, in the context of the song, Jay-Z, although an unabashed capitalist, sought to relate the sentiment that true wealth and security could never, ever be attained by merely capitalist, individualist principles of every person for themselves. Instead, he sought to communicate that it was incumbent upon us to ensure the material well-being of all of those around us as a protective hedge for the collective. W.E.B. Du Bois shared this same ideal. He warned, this is 115 years ago, he warned against the old trodden ways of grasping fierce individualistic competition where the shrewd and cunning and skilled and rich will prey upon the mass of the race and get wealth at the expense of the general well-being. He championed what he would refer to as cooperation in capital and labor and the massing of small savings and the wide distribution of capital and a more general equality of wealth and comfort. He warned that black people tended to think and were being taught to think that any method which leads to individual riches is the way of salvation. The book of Acts provides a theological heft for this idea. It recounts that an important distinction amongst those early Christians was that they shared resources to ensure the material well-being of not just themselves, but everybody in the collective. According to Acts chapter 2 and 4, they did not see their possessions as merely their own, but they saw them as being available to everybody for everybody's use. The Bible says that there was not a needy person among them because often the Christians who owned property would sell some of what they owned, collect the money from it, bring the money, contribute it to the collective, allow it to be dispersed. Why? So that the needs of everybody could be taken care of. This theology of collective salvation is antithetical to this hyper-individualistic theology that is pervasive in our time. And it goes against this limited collectivism approach that is only collective to the extent that it includes the people in my tribe while excluding the other people. And so what I want to argue this morning, this Easter Sunday morning, is that to follow Jesus Christ the liberator is to forsake individualism for collective salvation. It is to forsake me, myself, and I in favor of caring for the well-being of everyone, everybody. Not caring about my individual wealth, but the uplift of everybody. Not merely my own safety and protection, but that everybody is safe. And that everybody is protected. It is to ch not to simply care about my kid's school, but every kid's education. Not just the piece on my block, but that everybody has peace on every block. It is not simply caring about the food in my fridge and the food in my cabinets, but that every home has enough food. I believe with everything in me that this is what it means to be saved. To be saved from selfishness. To be saved from the natural innate placement of self before everybody else and the preservation of one's life. 
I, I want to contend that this is why we are a bunch of saved folks responsible for a society that is sliding toward hell. It is because we have considered our individual salvation, but not the salvation of the collective. The, the early Christians understood it differently. And so I want to look at two snippets to illustrate this in hopes that this Easter morning, you, along with me, will trade in your individualistic salvation for collective salvation. And really consider that the cross of Christ is about more than me and my goodness and my ticket to heaven and my relationship with God and that my debt has been paid. But it is also about my responsibility to the world around me. This is why he uses words like the body of Christ. This is why he gives his disciples a command like love one another. And so let's look. First, that what collective salvation is not. Collective salvation is not limited collectivism. In Acts chapter 6, Luke introduces us to an issue that has arisen within the church. It is effectively the church's first diversity, equity, and inclusion or discrimination problem. Y'all remember it, you Bible readers, the, the Greek-speaking widows were being left out of the daily distribution of food. So according to, uh, according to Luke, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, some of the ones who spoke Greek started complaining about the ones that spoke Aramaic. They complained that the Greek-speaking widows were not given their share when the food supplies were being handed out every day. We know from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that, that the church was practicing cooperative economics through the sharing of resources for the material benefit of the collective. But it seems that all of a sudden, what troubled this utopian setup was what I'm calling limited collectivism. While they had forsaken individualism for the sake of cooperation, it seems that they practiced it with tribal preferences. In this example, this incident bespeaks the theological issue at the root of many forms of discrimination. It is limited collectivism or selective collectivism. It involves essentially casting certain people as within and certain people as outside the core of concern and participation. It is a part of many Christians' ethos, hence, without feeling any kind of dissonance, people can be confessing Christians, but be racist, can be sexist, can be ableist, can be nationalist, can be homophobic. You see, at the heart of this malformed theology is how one interprets the word us. That this appears to be the problem in Acts chapter 6. Us perhaps meant those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, but who speak the same language, who share the same culture, or, or in our case, who are a part of the same class distinction, who have the same amount of degrees, who take the same kinds of vacations, who value the things that I value. Limited collectivism. These conflicts and these disputes over in-grouping and out-grouping 
wouldn't stop here. They would continue to arise throughout the book of Acts and the remainder of the New Testament, but it wouldn't just stop there. It would continue throughout the history of the Christian world. As one of my professors writes about, he says that this question that Jesus had raised regarding kinship when he said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? That this question continues to confound people of all generations. The idea of kinship, of identifying who's in and who's out. It's an ongoing struggle. To, to explore these questions is to grapple with the unfaithfulness of our own social reality. The unfaithfulness of our own lives to Jesus' promise. When Jesus said that those who do the will of my father are my mother, are my sister, are my brother. And so we must confront the question why we so easily see some people as our brothers, some people as our sisters, while we so easily see other people as strangers, as outsiders, as not belonging. This is at the heart of our problem. And while it might manifest in discrimination or classisms or haves versus have-nots, it is, has its root in this idea of limited collectivism. So I raised the question this morning, what is the antidote to this theology of exclusion or this limited collectivism? What is the theology that can bring about real social change within us? I submit to you this morning that it is an authentic theology of collective salvation that excludes nobody. Not tribal collectivism, not exclusionary collectivism, but truly expanding the tent of kinship as Jesus did in the scriptures. When he stated that my mother and my brothers and my sisters are all those who do God's will. Yeah, following Jesus, the liberator, means forsaking rugged individualism and exclusionary collectivism for truly living out collective salvation. Dr. King picked this up. He said that the world is a neighborhood, but it's going to be up to us to make it a brotherhood. He wrote, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. What affects one directly affects all indirectly. He, he wasn't out there by himself. The Apostle Paul agreed with this sentiment. You remember that he had to call out Peter. He said, I opposed him to his face because Peter had withdrew into these old tribal customs and traditions of exclusion when he refused to eat with the Gentiles while in the presence of other Jews. Paul said, no, nah, we ain't on that. Paul, in essence, reminded Peter that following Jesus, the liberator, meant that everybody was now part of the collective, even Gentiles. Paul wrote to the Gentiles and said to them that life as a member of the body of Christ was one where the old constructs that divided people by gender and by ethnicity and by class status, all of that had been collapsed. Now all people in Christ were part of a single collective. Paul wrote to the Galatians and said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. He didn't mean that now all of a sudden it didn't exist, but he said that with regard to what we are now a part of, this collective salvation, it don't matter no more. 
He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be a part of the collective. Let me show you two practices of this form of collective salvation, and I'll take my seat. In Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, we see the early church practicing it. As I stated earlier, in Acts 2 and chapter Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, they were sharing their resources. Why? It was for the good of the collective. And even when the exclusionary practices were exposed, they jumped in to fix it. The apostle said, let's appoint some people. Deacons. This is why deacons originally, this is where it all comes from. I said, let's, let's identify some people who are fair and trustworthy and have good reputation, and let's set them over this project to ensure that there is equity and fairness and everybody gets what they are supposed to get. They fix that problem. This is true collective salvation that is happening here. Again, salvation for them did not simply mean personal piety. It did not simply mean, let me figure out how to stop lying for the sake of just pleasing God between my relationship between me and God. Let me figure out how to stop lusting simply because of my relationship between me and God. Let me figure out how to stop being an adulterer because of my relationship with God and it breaks God hard, as the evangelicals would put it. I think God is tough enough to deal with that. What they understood that it meant was getting, moving beyond that to also get rid of the selfishness. The acts of simply self-preservation to think about all of those that were around them and to support their needs. The second example we see is with regard to the Philippian church. We learn that there is this collection that is going on because there is a famine going on in Jerusalem. Most of the Christians in Jerusalem are Jewish Christians. And so Paul goes out to all these Gentile churches that he's founded, and he says, I know y'all don't know them. I know they don't look like you. They don't speak the same languages. They, they, they practice a different culture and, and all of that. And some of them are even arrogant, and they question y'all's salvation because y'all are not Jewish like Jesus was. But they're your brothers, your sisters, your siblings. And they're in need right now. The children are going to bed hungry. There's famine, there's deep poverty happening. And the way that you can help them is not simply praying for them. Perhaps we can pull together some resources so we can help them. Paul says of the church at Philippi, they were eager to help. Paul recounted how the Philippians were eager to provide the relief to the saints. And he goes to other churches, to the Corinthian church. They eventually give. The Galatian church, they give. It is this form of working cooperatively and collectively to support the needs of everyone. This, this is what it means to be saved when Christians get this. When we get this. We will stop splitting hairs politically, worried about things, whether or not people that, that receive welfare truly deserve it or not. Because collective salvation 
It means that my, my concerns are not simply how much I have to pay in taxes. My, my, my concerns become things like how much are other people suffering and what could I do to alleviate that suffering? This is what it means to be saved. I close with this. In the world that I envision, undergirded by this theology of collective salvation, we no longer have economic inequality because the material well-being of one's neighbor becomes one's own concern. We no longer practice wage discrimination based on differences like race and gender and ethnicity because we've rid ourselves of those tribal ways that value the welfare of one group of people because they look like us over another group of people. Collective salvation changes our mindset to not view all, to now view all human beings as members of the in-group. Nobody's a part of the out-group. In a similar vein, in this vision, we no longer have racism because collective salvation smudges the lines that previously separated us. Those inexact social constructs of race as a pretext for racism, those things are exposed for the lie that they are. All people came from Adam. All people came from a single set of Africans. We're all a part of one single tribe of humanity. My vision of racism collapses under the flimsiness of racecrafting that has propped it up all of these years. And it becomes irrelevant because we now embrace inclusive kinship. We understand that while racism might privilege some, it ends up being ultimately a loss to the collective because other people get held down while some get propped up. Let me close this thing. In this age of rugged individualism, where everybody is supposed to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, we have been socialized to believe that she or he who does it best is the one that does it alone. The self-made person is lauded, and we get taught from an early age that to solve problems is to solve them alone. I don't know about y'all, but we got in trouble for asking the kid next to us that sat next to us in school for help with the answer to the problem. We were supposed to figure it out ourselves. God has called us to live differently in our lives. We were taught to compete against each other as kids for the best grades in class, for the highest test scores. We, we, we were taught to compete against each other for the best college application. We, we were socialized to believe in this idea of scarcity and that other people were our opponents rather than our allies. But could it be that our faith has called us to something different? That while rugged individualism is the mode of operation in the American empire, that there is a different ethic for those of us who are citizens of the kingdom of God. That for us, we trade in rugged individualism for radical collectivism. Let me say that one more time. We trade in rugged individualism for radical collectivism. And instead of asking the question, what about me, 
we raise the question, what about us? Oh.